Thanks for tuning in to the podcast of The Porch Church. We hope today's message blesses you and encourages you in your spiritual journey. If you have questions, visit us on the web, www.theporchchurch.tv. Well, welcome to our uh, continuing series on foundations. We've been spending some time in the book of Acts. We've been looking kind of at one particular verse or a couple of verses, and then we've been extrapolating out from that. This is week seven, and despite what it says on the screen and on your bulletin, we're doing it one more week uh, because we're having baptisms next week, and that just fits well with this passage. So, Sorry, I'm not updating the graphics for you. You're just going to have to come back and stay with it. But we're in week seven, and I actually had to count the weeks, which is a good sign that your series has gone on a little too long. Um, But anyway, seven is the number of completion of the Bible, right? It's the number of fullness. And uh, so today's going to be a good full message. I'm believing that. And, uh, you know, in my humble opinion, I think we're going to have a good time. Uh, So we're going to jump right in here. Acts chapter two. If you'd like to follow along with one of our worship center Bibles, I encourage you, you can just slip your hand up. Uh, Our ushers would love to bring you in. We'll be on page 535, I believe. 535 in the worship center Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, please just keep this. It's our gift to you. We want you to have God's Word in your life. Of course, all of our scriptures will also be up on the screen as well. So for review, let's jump in. Acts 2, starting at verse 42. They, this is speaking of the early church, the early followers of Jesus, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together, and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being Saved. Now, again, we've been talking about this, and we've kind of been drawing some patterns out, again, not only for what the early church applied them to, but to what we as a church, what our heritage kind of leads us toward, but then also the acts and practices that we can put in place in our own lives and build upon that same strong, sturdy foundation. So we've talked about these acts, right, that they devoted themselves to. They participated in a set working of things that included uh, Bible reading or scripture. That was the apostles' teachings. It included fellowship and food and communion gathering together. It included generosity and worship and all of these things that they devoted themselves to. And then we said that there was a a set of results, right? There were actions that happened. Things changed. Things were different because they devoted themselves to these habits, to these practices, to these fundamental gathering pieces when they were together. And then because of those things that they devoted to and the actions, the results that took place, we said there's, a, there's kind of a response that gets shaken loose. Typically, we see this in the lives of the world around the church, not necessarily within the people themselves, but the world responded differently. The people outside of the body of believers responded differently based on the things that they saw put into practice by this church. And, and today, though, we're going to talk about the fundamental 
purpose of that response, perhaps the largest one that we can see within the Scripture, right? At the end of this passage, the author just kind of slips something in nonchalantly. You're like, oh, it's not really a big deal, right? It's nothing unusual, but because we devoted ourselves to these things, to prayer, worship, generosity, Scripture, and fellowship, people were getting saved like on the regular, right? It says, look at verse, the end of verse 47, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, I, I like our church, right? I think we've got our own little unique slice of heaven right here. I hope you're with me this morning, right? But people getting saved every single day, that's not happening to my knowledge, right? It's not probably even happening every Sunday. And while that's okay, I think that that's something that we need to talk about, right? We have this little lantern that hangs up here in the corner that we light any time that we get to share in kind of these salvation God moments, shining the light and the love of Jesus. But apparently at this time in the church, the lamp never went out, there were continually people coming to hear the good news of Jesus, coming to put their faith in him, coming to be saved, which is astounding and remarkable and deserves a good hallelujah. But at the same time, it's a bit, I don't know, convicting. Are you with me there this morning, right? There's something about that that kind of makes me feel bad about myself. Are you there? There's a bit of this that so many things were happening in that early church at this early time that maybe there's a piece of us that's insufficient, that's not up to snuff. It's a bit of a sting. Let's see if we can ease that a little bit, right? Of course, we could say, right, Jesus was just like there, right? Like you could set your watch. They didn't have watch, the sundial, right? You turn it back a little bit. And like Jesus was actually there, right? Like he was moving among the people. They'd heard stories and rumors. And so, of course, right, people are coming out of the woodwork because maybe they'd been following Jesus at a distance. Maybe they'd heard some things. So maybe that kind of explains what was going on here. Let me just remind you, though, that probably weeks, days before this event happened, that Jesus was publicly executed in a way in which everybody knew that you should not follow Jesus unless you want to end up the same, right? So while there may be rumors of Jesus' resurrection, while there may be stories of his life, while there may be opportunities that the church is shining, it's in the midst of a really dark truth, which is if you follow Jesus, you will end up just like him, hanging on a cross. Well, maybe these people were just more spiritual than we are, right? After all, no cell phones to distract them. Uh, so obviously, they just had, you know, more time to like show up and hang out at church, right? Clearly, that was what was going on. Maybe they had better preachers, right, which is obvious because when people fell asleep, they fell out of a window and died, the preacher stopped in the middle of the message, resurrected them, and then kept preaching. If that happens this morning, the sermon's over, right? Like, I don't have any... I don't have anything else to follow up with that. But before we dismiss this story as just like a, a back then example, let's not miss the correlation, right? That these people were living in a spiritual culture where there were a plethora, a multitude of gods, of idols to be served. And while Jesus, the God of Israel, was certainly one of those options, it was in the midst of a spiritually chaotic time to where people who were seeking spiritual answers, where people who were seeking truth for their daily lives, Lives, come and they hear the story about Jesus and they commit themselves, they turn their lives over to following this Jesus, to hanging out with this group of people. There was something happening in that moment that was spiritually profound and spiritually remarkable and translated across every single boundary that you and I could think to possibly imagine. 
Something else was going on here. So let's go a little bit deeper into this story, into this reality. Specifically, we're just going to talk about one word today, one word that has become so religiously charged, so familiar that we might not even know quite what we mean when we say it, but everybody else probably does. It's so familiar that it's almost lost all meaning. It's right at the tail end of that verse. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Let's talk about being saved. What in the world is that? What are you planning to do this afternoon, Bob? I thought I'd go get saved. What about you? What are you up to? That's weird, right? So many questions. Saved from what? Saved to what? What's the process that's going on here? How are you saved? Why are you saved? What in the world is this idea, right? This little tiny word, saved, has actually migrated from one word in the Scriptures, from one kind of punctiliar action that had a a definite meaning, and now it's an entire branch of theology. It's called soteriology. That's not on the test. Don't worry. But there's this idea on the test. Thanks. I appreciate it. Soteriology, right? It's this idea of the, the theology behind being saved. What in the world do we even mean when we talk about this idea of salvation? How do we know that we're saved, right? Do you have to raise your hand in church? Do you have to pray the prayer the right way? Does it take the first time, or do you need to redo it a few times, right? Does it happen only when you're young and at camp? Can it happen to adults? If we're not confident, should we re-sign up just to be absolutely sure that we're in? What is this saving that we're talking about? And here's the reality. We're going to talk about this in this room today, which is a largely a group of people gathered to learn about Jesus, to open the Scriptures. But if this is a hard concept for us, if this is a weird concept for us, if we have a hard time placing our finger on what we're talking about, then people outside of these walls, people outside of our faith tradition don't stand a chance at understanding who Jesus is and what it means to be saved. So let's talk about this strange little word, this strange little thing that was going on that would cause people to willingly come to the church, to willingly come to Jesus and to say, whatever it is, I've got to be signed up for that. I've got to get saved. I need to be saved. Somebody save me please. What was going on there that we're still talking about it 2,000 years later? A little bit deeper, right? This tiny little word is the word sozo. Let me hear your Greek this morning. Say sozo. Sozo means to save. Shocking, right? It means to deliver. It means also to heal or to put right. In the other words, if you were uh, dying and you were sick and you were cured by a doctor, you would all of a sudden be sozoed. You would be saved. Sozo is just this tiny little word that means to save, to deliver, but it usually has the implication that, that death is somewhere around the corner, right? It's not like you're, it's not like you saved money in the bank, right? It's like there's some peril going on. There's death looming. There's destruction. If this isn't fixed, it will result in the end of your life. And so you're sozoed. You're made right. You're saved. You're delivered from whatever was at its capacity. Let's not forget that Greek wasn't just the language of the Bible, but it was the language of the ancient world at this time. And so some of the authors would say it this way, that sozo, even outside of biblical context, in the sense of an acutely dynamic act, this is what it means, in which gods or men snatch others by force from serious peril. 
We see this illustrated uh, in the works of Homer, not Simpson, but the guy who wrote the Odyssey, the Iliad, right? Major works of Greek stories where he would say, hey, eventually the heroes of old would get in such big trouble that they needed the gods to come in and to sozo them, to save them. The ship was going down, and if they hadn't intervened, there would be death and peril. There would be calamity for sure. And so the gods intervened then by saving. And here's the key point that we need to understand. Sozo is not something that you do for yourself. It is something that is done to you, something that is done for you, something that is done on your behalf. There is nothing that you can do in order to be saved. There's only what God has done on your behalf to save you. This is the good news of Jesus in the Gospels, that God has come and that he's come to save you from death, from peril, from certain destruction. We'll talk more about that later. And people came to be saved, to be rescued, to be delivered into his life. Maybe you remember this story. It's found in Luke chapter 18. It's the story of the rich young ruler. And this young kid comes to Jesus and says, hey, good teacher, what do I need to do to gain, to inherit, to possess eternal life? What do I have to do to get life to the full? What do I have to do to live the good life? And Jesus says, sweet, just do everything that I've said. Obey all the commandments. And the guy's like, yep, got it. Jesus is like, Got it? He's like, yep, got it. Done everything good since I was a baby. I got it all taken care of. And Jesus goes, okay, let's go, hotshot. One more thing. Why don't you sell all your stuff and come follow me? In other words, the answer to the question of where is life found is in Jesus, is in me. And Jesus says, get rid of everything else. Depend only fully on me, and then you'll have life. You'll have life to the full. You'll have the good life. You'll have life welling up. Come and follow me, because everything outside of me is a half-life. And the rich young ruler goes, away sad because he had money and he was young and he had power and he liked those things. He didn't want to be saved from that. He wanted to be saved to something else. He wants more of something different. And Jesus makes this aside. It's almost like an afterthought. The rich young ruler is walking away in the distance and he just turns to his gang of dudes and he's like, man, it's hard for rich people to get into heaven. And the, and the disciples who have learned that no rich people are actually the people who have God's favor go, well, then how can anybody be sozoed? How can anybody be saved? If there's this reality that it's hard for people to get into heaven, then what does it mean? Who does God save? And Jesus' answer is indicative of the entire working of the New Testament, the entire working of God in the person Jesus. While this may be difficult with God, all things are possible. Listen, God saves people. That's it. That's the end of the story. God saves, period. There's no aftermath. There's no prologue. There's no laundry list of things that need to go. We don't have to say the prayer the right way. You don't have to raise your hand 16 times. You don't have to be unsure. God saves, period. We cannot save ourselves. There's nothing that we can do to gain or to inherit this life in and of ourselves. It's simply what God has done in Jesus. This is the entire gospel that Jesus moved into the neighborhood to be a perfect, sinless, spotless lamb, to pay the penalty for all of our sin, all of our shortcomings that we willingly or unwilling partner with and that oppose God. Jesus comes in to say, don't worry, I've got you. Don't worry, I'm here to save you. He comes to rescue us and to do the work that is required. 
You can't be good enough. You can't keep the rules enough. You can't follow directions enough. You can't give enough money. You can't clean yourself up enough. You can't earn it or pay for it. It's non-transferable. God saves period. But the good news is, is that it's a free gift given to everyone. Paul is writing to instruct Timothy, who's a young preacher, a young church leader at the time, and here are his words to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He says, this is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants, who desires, who is after all people being saved, and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. God, through Jesus, made a way for all people to be saved. See, it's as if we're drowning in the ocean. It's as if that we're trying to tread water through this life. We're trying to keep afloat, and you can use that in whatever capacity you want to, relationally, financially, in this world, with our morality, all of the things with being parents just kind of well up, and we find ourselves gasping for air. We can't tread water any further, and at that moment, God comes along, his arm already extended out to help us into the lifeboat. God saves people period. He's the one who possesses life. He's the one who has the boat, and his arm is perpetually reached out to those who are in need. God saves, period. But that's not to say that we're merely passive in the account. God saves, but we must accept the hand that is reached out. We must willingly allow him to pull us into the boat. We must allow him to bring us into the life as he defines it, not as perhaps we would prefer it. God saves, and there is no ifs, ands, or buts about that, but we receive that gift of salvation, and it is something that we participate in. By receiving God's gift, it doesn't mean that we have any action save ourselves. We are being saved by God's action. The only ability that we possess is to simply reach out our hand and to accept what he's given us. God saves, but we have a choice in the matter. We have a choice whether or not we choose to spend our life in the boat or our life perpetually treading water, gasping for air. This is one of the fundamental issues with salvation, with soteriology, with what does it mean to be saved because sometimes we're just drowning at the moment, and if we could get dried off a little bit, maybe grab a hot, fresh meal, then we're right back in the water again. We jump out of the boat saying, yeah, this worked for a little bit. It worked when I was younger. Maybe it worked when I was a kid, but now I'm older. Now I'm more mature. Now I've got bigger, complex problems, and so this tiny little boat, this tiny raft to which God saves us to no longer holds us any longer. We think that we outgrow the gift that God has given us, and so we jump back into the water where if history serves me correctly, it's only a matter of time before we find ourselves drowning again. God saves, but we participate, and it is our action to stay close to God, to stay in the lane by which his grace is received, to take and accept his gift of free life, and to find ourselves in the place where God has it. Now, we're just talking about the basic mechanics of what it is to be saved. Deathly peril, God acts, we receive. This is the most basic way that we can understand what it is to be saved, that God is actively seeking us. He is not passive, nor are we allowed to simply be passive. We accept. But now the bigger questions. What exactly are we saved from? 
What do we need to be saved from? What is this peril that we carry with us? And what is the reality to which God saves us to, right? Is it earthly financial blessings? Can we get saved today and buy a new car tomorrow? What exactly is the proposition here? What is the life that God offers to us? How is God saving us from anything? And how is it something that at least in the scriptures at the early church that they were so on board for, that they flocked to it daily to be saved? What was the story that they were believing in, and where do we find ourselves in that story? God's simplest plan here is that we're saved from sin, which is a really churchy word and doesn't mean a whole lot outside of these four walls. Sin is a separation from God. It's the fundamental disposition of our hearts to lean towards ourself instead of towards God. It's the place that we find ourselves in whereby my thoughts are continually occupied with myself and not occupied with perhaps the person that God would have me to be. Sin is fundamentally a disease of the heart. It's a disease of self, and it's something that we're all complicit in. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, perhaps you're uncomfortable with this word sin. It's very not stylish today. It's very out of vogue, and I understand that. But let's just own this piece of it. No matter who you are, no matter where you come from, we just talked about drowning in an ocean. And I saw so many of you go, yeah, that's my life, right? Like, I just feel that. I feel like life is overwhelming. I feel like there's too many things going on when the proposition of somebody giving you an arm out, helping you out, pulling you out of the situation that you're in instantly, my heart at least, maybe yours does too, inclines to a yes. There's something, there's something off about this whole Experience. There's something deeply flawed as we survey the world around us, as we survey social media, as we survey elections and left and right and everything. There's something that if we just step back and we go, I don't think this is how it's supposed to be. I don't think this is the best version of what could exist in the world. I don't think that this is humanity at its best. I think we're capable of more, but there's just too much of us in the middle. Sin, by its most basic recognition, is just our own shortcomings, the own ways in which we participate in making the world worse instead of better. So when God saves us from our sin, I think that's the most biblically accurate definition. But let me say it a different way. I think that what God saves us from truly in Jesus is ourselves, is this place within us that inhabits us where we're inclined to ourselves, where we think that the world is our oyster. And Jesus invites us into a different ordering of the universe, a place where he is supreme and over all and in all and through all, and we're invited to participate in that reality. Fundamentally, I think that Jesus comes to save us from ourselves, from the destruction that we wrought of our own volition, from the actions that we take, that we are complicit in, that range deep and far throughout our world. It's that little piece of us where we go, this isn't how it's supposed to be. I think it's supposed to be better than this. I think that we can all go along on that journey and say, yeah, I feel, I feel that. I feel a little bit like we need to be saved from ourselves. You can call it sin if you're comfortable with that. You can call it the id and the ego. You can call it your own selfishness. Whatever word you want to put there, there is something that we collectively and individually need to be saved from. 
The way that Scripture tells that story is simply this, that because sin separates us from God, that the wages, that the earnings of what happens in our heart being inclined towards self is, that, is death is that we're perpetually and eternally separated from the God who has life, that we're stuck in the ocean when the lifeboat is going around saving people, but the wages that we earn is that we're separated from the life that God has to offer us. What separation from God looks like is that we live counter from the way that he would live for us. If God and Jesus possess life and hope and a future and the good life, the full life that we all desire for, sin, separateness, uh, our own selfish ways separate us from those things that God has for us. And so in life, we're stuck We're stuck in a system and in actions that we can't fix on our own that leave us pulled away, removed from the life that God offers us in Jesus. And we're stuck with no hope of anything getting better and no clue how to perceive that. Life becomes hollow and we're drowning. And it's in that moment where I believe that God extends his hands to us to save us from ourselves. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, while we were still drowning in the ocean of our own choices and selfishness, that Christ actually died for us, that he extended his hand at his own peril to invite us and pull us in to life, that he is so rich in love that in our brokenness and the messes that we've made and the places where we recognize recognize our shortcomings, our sins, our selfishness. It's in those places that he reaches in and says, I've got something better for you. I can make this right. I can cure this disease. This doesn't have to end up in death. It can instead end up in light. That's the second part of the verse. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life, is good life, is the full life in Christ Jesus. See, I think that we're saved from ourselves, but what we're saved to be is to be the very people that he created us to be, to be exactly who he formed and crafted and made us to be in his image, that when we're saved from death, what we're actually given is life and life to the full, full life, eternal life, real life, which if I'm honest, I think is part of the problem. See, when we rewind to the book of Acts, there was something so compelling about what was going on in the church and in the people and in the lives of these individuals that people said, I've got to get me some of that. I've got to have some of that life, some of that fullness. I've got to be closer to God because I see the life that you have and I want some more of that. And as we survey the church today, as we look at our place in our world, I don't know that people see us as a place of hope and of love and of life, and of fullness. I think far too often we're a place of judgment and condemnation. I think that we've been building on the wrong foundation. I got a call uh, this week uh, from a former youth group member. She was in my youth group 10 years ago. Um, Long time ago. Hadn't spoken to her in forever. Calls up, says, hey, you know, things are, things are going bad. My career is going in the direction that I don't want to go. My marriage has collapsed. I'm not sure where I stand on the faith thing, but I'm, I can't share this with anybody around me. Nobody understands. My parents don't. My people at work don't. My spouse doesn't. My friends don't. And I'm just feeling so, so isolated. Like the world is just caving in like I'm drowning. Not the terms she used, but I hear it in her voice. 
And so desperately what I want to say is go to any building with the word church in it. Because what you'll find there is love and grace and compassion and people to walk alongside you. Yes, you'll find Jesus, I hope, that's my prayer, but really you just need people, you just need love and community and compassion. But you know that we can't say that. Am I wrong? I can't just send her into a church and say, don't worry, you'll be loved and accepted there. Don't worry, you'll find a people who love you. She happens to be in the South, and there's all kinds of different ways that could work out, and they could find some way to actually judge her and condemn her and push her out because of where her life is right now. Why is it that this church that we represent has the opposite effect on the people around us as the church that we're reading about in the book of Acts? What changes among us from where we go to, yes, I need to be saved, yes, I'm drowning in my own selfishness, my sin, I need Jesus to rescue me, but then something happens where somebody else comes up alongside of us and we convince them that they're not worthy to receive the same grace that we have received. Are you with me? Do you know this story? Has this happened to you? I don't feel like I'm making this up. I feel like it's so familiar. It's so right at the edges. But part of being saved is the recognition that this is not a destination on a map. This is not a place where we end up. Salvation is not fundamentally about heaven. While that is a large piece of what's going on here, salvation is about coming to terms with who we are and who God is. And can it happen in a prayer? Absolutely. Can it happen at summer camp? Yes. Can you raise your hand and accept that gift? Absolutely. But fundamentally, being saved happens on a day-to-day basis. It happens with every choice that we make, with continually finding ourselves to be transformed into the person and likeness of Jesus Christ. It has to do with reflection and introspection and and not just simply praying a prayer one time when we were five and, and not raising our hand that one time at camp. We need to be saved daily, as it were. We need to have this process whereby we set ourselves down at the throne of grace and whereby we receive from Jesus to be reminded that he pulls us into the lifeboat. See, too often I think we're drowning in that sea of our own selfishness and sinfulness and we take the gift of life, but it's still just a stormy day and we're hanging on for dear life on the boat, hoping that we don't crash back off on our own, just begging that God saves us when in reality there's like a whole deck underneath it where there's life and warmth and there's a place to relax and there's rest for your soul and we can go there and get mature, get grown up, get warm a little bit before we go back out to be with Jesus and help him find souls to save. Too often I think we rest at salvation being a prayer that we did one time and we stop receiving the gospel on a daily basis. Are you with me? Playing games with my kids last night. Um, I, I, I like to win. And I'm faster than they are. And for the time, I'm still smarter than they are. Which means that we were playing this stupid like headband game, right? We got the thing up there and you gotta guess what's on top of it. And I can see the reflection in my in the window, right? Like I You with me? Part of daily being saved is the own contrition within my heart to go, I don't want to, I want to win, but I don't want my kids to see me as a cheater. I want to set for them the example of honesty and integrity. 
And the reason why I do this is because God and I have conversations where he convicts me of the places where I'm not in line, where I'm not being saved. I'm not talking about eternity, that's sure. I'm not trying to create fear and anxiety around your eternal destination. Romans 10 10 says that if we hear and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we'll be saved. On one level, salvation is very, very easy. God does it, we receive it. End of story. You can have that confidence today, no problem. But on the deeper level, there is the continual saving and rehabilitation and repentance of my soul to where I used to be inclined to myself, and now I need to be inclined towards God. And when I cheat at a stupid game, the Lord and I have a conversation. And we go, is that integrity? Is that the model that you want to model for your boys? And I say no, and I go and apologize to them over bedtime prayers because I'm a cheater. And they need to know that because I'm not above being saved. Are you with me? I'm up on stage. I'm sharing the message. We're opening the word. But I'm the first in line to say, I am the chief of all sinners. God, save me. And I think that if that were our posture more as a community, more as a local body, more as a worldwide religion of faith, that we would have the opportunity that people would say, wow, those people are honest. They're honest in their love and their assessment and they're seeking and pursuing something better. I don't know about this whole Jesus cat. I don't know what's going on in their hearts and lives, but, but I'm willing to be with them. I'm willing to hang out with them. I'm willing to hear the story. I'm willing to watch them in the process of being saved and to so be transformed. Psalm uh, 139 says it this way. This is a, a daily prayer for me. Search me, O God, know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. God, help me not be a cheater at board games with my kids. Help me to be honest and integrous with my finances, with my relationship with my wife. Help me when I'm alone to be the exact same person as whether I'm up on stage with a microphone or just me and you alone in the wilderness. God, help me to be saved. Notice the question is not about eternity It's about the here and now because I think what God has for us, what he wants for us is to be the people who are being saved daily, to be the participants in that. And I think that the result and the response of that in the world around us might be that others are being saved as well. I want to invite you just to bow your heads with me to pray with me quickly to recognize whatever portion of your own self is in that. Maybe the Holy Spirit puts something on you that you just need to receive this morning. Maybe it's much broader than that. Maybe you've never heard the gospel presented in this way and you have one of those honest questions. You have the space now to, in your own words, in your own heart, to believe in those things that we said, that Jesus is Lord, that you repent for your sin, that you want your heart to be inclined for him. Whether this is your first time or your thousandth time, this is grace and the gospel, and you're invited into it. But deeper than that, I hope that we can all find a way for us to acknowledge this. Okay, God, where do I need to be saved today? Where do I need the gospel and your grace and your truth in my life? Holy Spirit, would you put your finger on the hearts of each of us now and clearly identify a place whereby you want us to have more life, more fulfillment, more peace, more grace, 
Jesus, would you save us there today? And God, would you give us the the prerogative, the proximity to not only have that happen today, but to have it happen tomorrow when we see that coworker, when we have that conversation in the kitchen, when we find ourselves in places where grace is needed, God, that we would first and foremost be recipients of grace. And then because we've received so fully that we would dispense it fully on those people around us. Jesus, would you save us first? God, as we receive that gift then uh, to be saved from ourselves and to be instead saved to life, to what we were created to be, Holy Spirit, would you enable us to carry the life-giving message of the cross and of Jesus into the world around us? God, right now, people are open to this story because it's Thanksgiving and Christmas and all of the sudden, all the topics that have been taboo are not. Jesus, would you give us favor? to shine your light in the world. But God, would you first start by saving us. Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you. We ask that you would seal all of these things and teach us and lead us in the strong and mighty name of Jesus and in the power of your Holy Spirit that lives and dwells in the hearts and minds of all believers. All God's kids said,